Hi, this is Tom Zoller, creator of Long Distance Love and Capes, and best known for creating anybody for Dial H for Hero in Superboy number 35. And you are listening to the Quarter Bin Podcast. This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will kind of select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 64th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at the giant size star brand annual from Marvel Comics' new universe line, cover dated 1987. This is the second of a three-episode series, a visit to another dead universe, this time Marvel's mid-to-late-1980s new universe initiative. But this is also a back-to-the-bin-style, bandwagon-jumping, coattail-riding, search-engine-optimizing episode, because in December, Marvel is bringing out a new ongoing series featuring a pair of old New You characters in the new book, Starbrand and Nightmask. So consider this episode a primer, preparation for that new ongoing. But first, a little feedback on the last few episodes. On episode 62, the Veterans Day episode, Steve Lee, one of the guests, talked a bit about his experience on the episode on episode 286 of his podcast, The Waves of Tech. He also posted on Facebook that he appreciated being on the episode. It was great having you on the show, Steve. Ed Moore said he thought the episode was a great idea and that the execution was pretty good, too. And I'll be honest... I'm pretty pleased with how that one turned out. Of course, great guests really help. On last episode, the Night Mask debut, Bradley Null wrote in, I love a well-thought-out comic universe. I was excited when Marvel's new universe started. Yes, I was actively buying comics at the time this came out. I'm also a fan of the idea of entering dreams as a plot device in fantasy. This comic should have been a favorite. But it just wasn't. Much like the rest of the new you, it was a great idea handled in a way that was just boring. I would later defend other parts of the new you, Starbrand and DP7 in particular, for their later issues. However, my memories of the start of the new you was a why isn't this just better feel throughout most of the line. That said, if there is a universe that should be completely collected from the quarter bin, this is it. Mayhap it could be your official QBU, Bradley Man. I like the idea of my own quarter bin universe, I must say that, but I like to take a more expansive view and consider every book in the quarter bin to be part of my domain. Bradley did add, yes, This does make me itch to do my own nullified worlds type podcast. I just need a desk. First of all, the idea of a Dead Universe podcast is awesome. And being named Null, the potential punerific name for the podcast is is reason enough to do it for crying out loud. 
Zeph Oswalt commented that it was a cool podcast, as always. I never read Night Mask of the New Universe. I read mostly DP7, Spitfire, and Cyforce. Thanks, Zeb. The Facebook posts for some or all of those issues were shared by Ed Moore of Teal Productions, a Sutherlands from Trekker Talk and the new Warlord Worlds podcasts. I was Kyle Benning from King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, and Chris Ivey from the Geek Brunch Retrocast. Thanks for all that feedback, everybody. I really appreciate it. And now, on to our book for this episode. The Giant Size Star Brand Annual had a cover price of $1.25, meaning I acquired this book at a very nice 80% cut off that original retail price. The cover, by Tom Morgan, shows our blonde hero man in a brown jumpsuit in a snow-swept alpine setting, firing a blast out of his hand at a couple of armed goons in a snowmobile. A beautiful woman is at his feet. The story, Intimate Enemies, was written by Bobby Chase, with art by Jeff Isherwood and Art Nichols. We start somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. A Swiss Air jet is heading to Europe, and next to it is Starbrand, keeping out of sight, wondering what the pilot would do if he could see him now. I could be a witness to the world's first DC-10 loop-de-loop. Proving that this book was produced way before 9-11 and the toughened airport security procedures that followed, Ken Connell lands next to the plane and just sort of blends in with the disembarking passengers. We learn that one of his oldest friends, Tony, whom he hasn't seen in years, has invited him to hang out. And trust me, and the opportunity to leave Pittsburgh for Switzerland, you take. Tony, the old buddy, is an Olympic skiing champion, and evidently he wants to show off to Ken how awesome his life is, and how awesome his new girlfriend Ariane is. She thought Bubbles that Ken is cute, who thought Bubbles in return that she is gorgeous. So yes, that's where we're going. They head off to Ariane's chalet, and everything is picture-perfect, including, if I haven't mentioned already, Ariane. By the way, she's also filthy rich, from a family that is filthy rich. The chalet, for example, has a view of the Matterhorn. The three of them lounge by the fire, Ariane hoping that Tony doesn't notice her attraction to Ken. But maybe Tony does, because he throws his glass across the room and storms off to bed, claiming he's just tired. The next day, Tony promises his old buddy the toughest workout of his life, on the slopes. Ken is not a great skier, and knows that Tony, the old buddy, just wants to make fun of him in front of a woman. After a few embarrassing tumbles, Ken violates one of the major rules of superheroing. Time to use a little star brand ability. If I can't ski on snow, at least I can ski an inch or two off of it. So using his powers for personal gain, he beats his Olympian friend down the slopes and gets a big hug from Ariane. The next day at the big race, Tony loses a ski and goes off course. He is angry, very angry, and Ariane lets us know this is not new. He just keeps getting worse and worse, and we also learn that he is drinking again. A few nights later, Ariane and Ken wonder where Tony's gotten off to, thinking maybe he's just trying to throw them together for some reason. They agree it's best that maybe they don't spend as much time 
as they have been together. A few more days later, Ken interrupts a drunken Tony in a big fight with Arianne, and we realize that we are in fact reading a very special issue of Giant Size Star Brand Annual. Both of them yell at him, which is unfortunately a pretty standard response. How do I get to be the bad guy? Tony treats her like dirt, but I could protect her. She could be mine. They actually do a little smooching later, and the guys that Tony has hired to spy on Ariane see the whole thing. You see, this was all a twisted, weirded, stalkery test, and now Tony wants his hirelings to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. Not ever. Do you understand me, gentlemen? The men fire at the new couple with arrows, but can deflect them, revealing to the potential killers that he has strange powers. They change their plans and now figure out that they can sell info about Ken to terrorists. Next time, they try faking a ski accident to lure the pair in, but Ken uses the Starbrand powers to start an avalanche, killing the men and also putting Tony in a coma. Ariane didn't see exactly what happens, but knows it was some kind of weird power blast. And in her dreams, she visualizes Ken using some sort of laser bazooka to injure Tony. It's her way of trying to make sense of what she saw. Meanwhile, the use of the Starbrand power has gotten the attention of Interpol. They have his picture, but not his identity, not yet and a terrorist organization with a mole inside Interpol has also heard of this secret weapon that's been tested in the area. That secret weapon is, of course, the Starbrand power, but no one exactly knows what that is. And the terrorists put him on their hit list. And they have his picture, but not his identity. Not yet. Ken and Ariane are staying at a nondescript inn, but he sneaks out one night to check in on her chalet. It is surrounded by military. I guess they've torn the place pretty well apart. But the terrorists see him scoping out the chalet. That must be him. We do as Muhammad said. We follow. We watch. And when we see a sign of his great power, then we make our move. Ariane doesn't totally trust Ken, but she knows she has to trust him. He's all I've got now. But she hears a news report that Tony is still in a coma and that he was burned over most of his body. Burned? In an avalanche? That doesn't make sense. Until she remembers her dream and starts to sort of figure it out. Ken finally admits to her that yes, he has powers. And he agrees to drive her back to the chalet. All he can think of is that this has been the worst day of his life. And since this is a comic book, such a thought guarantees that things are about to get a whole lot worse. Some bad dudes run them off of the snow-swept country roads, and they hoof it through the snow to a hiding place. But Ariane is not about hiding. Aren't you going to kill them? Now, when you can finally do some good, you won't. You have the power. It's a chance to redeem yourself after what you did to Tony. They argue for a few minutes, and the bad guys don't find them. They're gone. I won't kill them. I can't kill another person. Even for you. Coward! You could have gotten rid of them once and for all. You could have protected me. And you didn't. I trusted you. And you've destroyed everything. 
Ariane heads off to the car and drives away, leaving Ken alone. He just flies off. All the way back to Pittsburgh, as a matter of fact. The next day, he's just vegging out in front of the TV. When a news break interrupts his sitcom. Near Zurich, terrorists attacked and killed a woman today in her home. She was the former girlfriend of Pittsburgh native, Olympic skier Tony Kraft, who is now in a coma as a result of a bizarre skiing accident last week. Police are looking into a possible link between the two incidents. The End secret governmental organization operating behind the scenes. Task Force X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. Check it out, or you'll answer to the wall. And we're back. Marvel Comics has a number of different founding dates that they can use for recognizing anniversaries. Just last year they claimed 1940 as their origin date, making 2015 their 75th anniversary. Well, back in 1986, they were counting 1961 as their origin, the date of Fantastic Four number one, making that year their 25th, and thus worthy of a celebration. And to celebrate that anniversary, Jim Shooter decided to launch the new universe. This was to be a distinctly separate world, not connected at all to what we now know as the 616. It consisted of continuing characters and stories in what was intended to be a more realistic setting. And part of that was moving their heroes out of New York City. We talked a little bit about that last episode, noting in the Night Mask issue that they were very specific about that being in and around Washington, D.C. Here, it's Pittsburgh, where Starbrand lives, although we end up in Switzerland for most of the story. Anyway... The new universe would also have no hidden races, no mythological beings, no magic, and not even any Iron Man-style super technology. They pushed it as the world outside your window. The world of the new universe was identical to our own until the White Event, which was a weird astronomical thing that bathed the Earth in a piercing white light. Last episode, we witnessed that event in the first issue of Night Mask. But it's that one-time event that brought out genetic anomalies in a very small number of humans. 
superhuman characters and powers would be limited and thus more subdued in their activities, yet their actions would have more realistic consequences. And we see a little bit of that in this issue with real-world emotions, although heightened a bit, but Ken's actions have consequences for both Tony and, even more tragically, for R.E.M. As we talked about in the feedback section earlier, this notion really could have, should have, been exciting. And for the most part, these books weren't. Along with DP7, Starbrand was probably one of the better thought-of books in the new U, especially the last half of the 19-issue run, which was written and penciled by John Byrne. I know the guys at the Third Degree Burn podcast have mentioned in passing his run on Starbrand, but I can't remember if either one of them said that they've ever read it, so I'm sure they'll eventually get to it on their show. Overall, The New You ran 32 months, putting out about 170 issues over that time, with the aforementioned DP7 going the full distance, along with Justice and Psyforce. And despite the line lasting almost three years, only four of the eight titles ever had annuals. Now, there are many things to do with an annual, many ways that an annual can be used. Sometimes the annuals are where the big company-wide crossover takes place. Or perhaps a theme is taking place there. I I think of the DC Pulp Heroes annuals as an example of that. Sometimes it's where a major event takes place, like maybe a wedding. Historically, of course, annuals have been places for reprints, but that's not been the case for a long time. Sometimes they exist just to fill the empty fifth week that happens in the calendar four times a year. And sometimes it's a place to give a new writer a chance. And I think that's what's happening here. Bobby Chase, or Barbara Chase, has a credit list that is pretty long. She's been in the comics business for three decades, but not really as a writer, as an editor, mostly. Moving up from assistant to executive editor at Marvel, in the mid-90s, she was one of Marvel's editors-in-chief, the highest level a female has ever reached at Marvel on the editorial side. Now, she lost her job when Joe Quesada and Bill Jemis took over the top spots at Marvel, and she did a variety of work until joining DC as an editor at some of the New 52 Batman books. In early 2015, she became DC's Vice President of Talent Development. And all that being said, her output as a writer is well under two dozen stories spread out over three decades in the comic business. And this was her first published comic book work. And that's not to say it's a bad story by any means, but it does lack some of the traditional comic book pop. I wonder if it was pitched as a fill-in for a regular issue, you know, a 22-pager, and they got stretched to 38 to fill the annual. That's just a theory on my part, but parts of the story do feel a little bit stretched out. But that may also represent one of the fundamental problems with the new universe, that the characters were not overly powered. They had to hide their powers, which on a very practical basis makes it hard to write exciting action-packed stories. The action scenes themselves are, by definition, more muted because the powers are less powerful. And remember the rules. No ancient races, no secret aliens, no overpowered beings. In other words, 
None of the things that regularly make superhero comics exciting. Which is okay when the emotions of the story are strong, and that is definitely the case here. The love triangle is there right from the start. The attraction between Ken and Ariane is clear, is strong, is obvious. And for a comics line that promised realism, the nature of these relationships are realistic. I joked about the very special nature of the alcoholism, the fighting between Tony and Ariane, the creeping, the spying, all that. We learn that Ariane has cheated on Tony in the past, and he seems to have set up this whole thing as a loyalty test. That's weird enough, creepy enough, stalkery enough. But when he turns to murder, it then moves to comic book villainy. Total hypothesis on my part, but the Interpol and terrorist parts of the plot may be what got added on, if in fact the story was stretched out to more pages. There was just a bit of a misfit of those parts of the story to the rest, or maybe this was just Chase's inexperience as a comic book writer showing. There is a sensitivity, a caution I feel when I talk about issues of diversity. In general, I think that more perspectives is better than fewer perspectives. And the fact that Bobby Chase is one of the most successful female executives in comics is a good thing, all things balanced. Having female writers on balance is a good thing. The problem is identifying what it is that the female perspective, quote-unquote, brings. We could say the same thing about any perspective of age or worldview of ethnicity, social, political, religious worldview. For example, this story has real emotions and a real take on a really troubled relationship. Those aspects of the story seemed way more real than the uses of Ken's power and were better than the fight scenes. The writing about human dynamics was the strength of the story, was the strength of Bobby Chase's script. But I hesitate to say that's because she's a female writer, because then I'm engaging in a gender stereotype. So we want, for example, more women writing comics because of their experiences and perspectives. But then we have a problem with identifying a single stereotypical female perspective or female style. It all gets a bit confusing. But in terms of this story in particular, with the emotion of the story, the modern take on the relationships in the story, one question comes to my mind. How has the CW not made a miniseries out of this issue? I just don't know. (laughs) Technically, this is Marvel and they're DC, so maybe the better question is how has the Disney Channel not made a miniseries out of this issue? Because this has all the hallmarks of a modern 21st century young adult story. The emotions, the melodrama, the, dare I say, angst. I don't necessarily seek out those kinds of stories, but this issue tells that story really well. And the ending, the death of Ariane, that's a real gut punch. You know, we've had an ongoing discussion here on the show about endings, about how much an ending matters to overall enjoyment of a story. In film theory, there's a notion that a movie is about how it ends. I don't know that that applies to an ongoing story like a comic book. There's, there's no real ending. I don't know where the story goes on from this issue, what the real follow-up is for Ken with Interpol and, and, and the death of Ariane. But in terms of this issue, how this issue ends, 
it was really satisfying. It was really well done. I would say the emotions of that ending were earned. The verdict on Giant Size Star Brand Annual, well, it was a little untraditional, a story that placed a higher value on relational emotional stakes than on physical stakes, and a story that had characters sort of acting like real humans, and the story had real consequences, and then had a corker of an ending. The new universe is all over the quarter bins. And this particular issue was well worth the 25 cents. A legitimate quarter bin deal. That wraps up my coverage of the giant size star brand annual, bringing episode 64 of the quarter bin to a close. And episode 65 will cover... Well, what I did was I put up on the Facebook page all of the other New Universe books I had in the Quarter Bin database. And listeners, well, listeners with access to Facebook, I guess, were able to vote on the one they wanted me to cover. I randomized the selection, and the winning entry was made by Christopher Ouellette, who, as a result of that, will win a package of books, some of which we've covered here, and just some others that I had. Merry Christmas to Chris. And the book he voted for was, and thus the book we'll cover in episode 65, was Justice, number 17, from Marvel Comics' New Universe line, cover dated March 1988. And what that goes to show is the importance of liking the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network on Facebook. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor Allen! <laughs>